On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake at Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out from them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out from a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. They came, filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And when Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. You may be seated. Thank you, Matt. We'll be in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 26. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 26, as we continue our study in the book of Luke. Well, you're all still awake. That's pretty good. I'm impressed. You know, I thought by the time I would get up here, it would just be people laid over sleeping. But uh, we'll see if we can change that. You'll be asleep soon. No, I'm kidding. Here we go. Jesus transforms people, and he starts with Peter. We're going to look at three different, really powerful, uh, miraculous events uh, in the life of Christ. And what we want to see as we look at these events, beginning with uh, Peter and the occasion in his boat, as well as uh, the healing of a leper and the healing of a man who was unable to walk, is how Jesus transforms people and, and what his goal is uh, in transforming uh, people. Keeping in mind, in the book of Luke, one of the primary themes of this gospel is outsiders become insiders. People who are on the outside find themselves as insiders, in the club, so to speak. Outsiders become insiders, and that really is the case uh, in our passage here this morning. If you've Maybe think about it this way. If you've ever been to a, a theme park, Disneyland, or Six Flags, one of these places, you go to ride one of the rides. They've got a little thing outside the ride that says you have to be uh, this tall to ride. And usually there's a little cartoon character with his finger pointing, and, and the top of your head has to hit that, that line there. Uh, otherwise, you're not getting on the ride. Some of you see that and say, man, I wish I was shorter than that. I don't want to ride this thing. But every now and then you'll see there at the entrance to that ride a little kid straining, you know, trying to stretch his neck out and he's stuffed toilet paper into his shoes and he just needs to buy himself another inch. If he was just a little bit taller, 
He'd be in, and he'd be able to ride uh, this ride. And what Jesus is going to show us in uh, this passage is he is letting all the people in who don't measure up. Is all the people who don't measure up to the line are getting on. Uh, because outsiders uh, become insiders. So on this occasion, uh, and Matt read it for us, uh, Jesus was, was teaching and the crowds were pressing into him. So he was having trouble teaching the crowd because he was on the shore of the lake. This is Lake Gennesaret, as, as you may uh, know it, the Sea of Galilee. I like the fact that it is called here the lake because the Sea of Galilee is a little bit of a, a misconception. The Sea of Galilee really is a lake. It's about one-third the size of, in surface area of Lake um, Tahoe. We don't call Tahoe the Sea of Tahoe. The last time I was there, uh, that's not what we're calling it. It's Lake Tahoe in, or Tahoe Lake. And so uh, the Sea of Galilee is really a, a lake, and it's the, the often called Gennesaret uh, in this case, or sometimes the Sea of Galilee. And so he's teaching on the shore, and people are crowding around him because they're, he's becoming more and more well-known because of his authoritative teaching as well as the fact that he's healing people. He's doing powerful works uh, of God in their midst, and so people are pressing into him. And, and there's a couple of boats sitting there, and so what he does is he says to Peter, hey, will you let me get in your boat and kind of put out a little bit into the water. And the water now creates a natural buffer between him and the crowd. They're not wading into the water. It does a couple of things for him. Number one, it gives him a little space so everybody can hear him. And secondly, being on the water, everybody's going to be able to hear him even better. I don't know if you've ever done that. You'll hear, see two fishermen out in the middle of, of Lake of the Woods, and you're sitting on the shore, and you can hear every word as though they're uh, sitting next to you. Fishermen, you, you might want to pay attention to the acoustical effects of uh, the water if you're out fishing and, and uh, someone you know is on the shore. They can all hear it. And so Jesus in this boat is going to be able to talk, and everybody's going to be able to hear them. And, and Simon so gets into the boat with him. This is Simon Peter. And, uh, and Jesus continues teaching. And at a, at a certain point, Jesus' teaching is wrapping up. He's done with what, with what he's going to teach them. And he, and he says to Peter, hey, why don't, we, uh, why don't we go out a little into the water, and, and you can put out your net and catch some fish. What do you think Peter is thinking, having worked all night? I, want, I don't want to throw another net tonight. I, I think I'm good. Number one, I worked all night. Second thing, after working all night, I listened to a sermon. You know what Peter wants is lunch and a bed. That's what Peter wants. And Jesus says, why don't we put out and you can cast your net into the water? This is really, really fascinating. I'm trying to rack my brain. I couldn't think of a spot. When did Peter catch fish in the Bible? I tell you what, every time Jesus showed up, what was he saying? We, could, we didn't catch anything. The only time in the Bible that I can remember Peter caught fish is when Jesus told him to fish. What, remind me again, what was Peter's profession? <laughs> yeah, Peter, I don't know, you might want to consider yourself a hobbyist. Uh, every time. But think about this for Peter. He knows who Jesus is, and he respects him, and he obviously... Uh, even loves him at this point in his life even before following him and he's got one thing he does really well and the Lord shows up I mean th imagine this if Jesus showed up at your job you're really good at your job and Jesus shows up he's like I, Jesus is here I want to show him how good I am at this and every time Jesus showed up everything went terrible every time Jesus showed up in Peter's life he never caught any fish 
The only time he caught fish is in this instance when Jesus says, after fishing all night, I'll show you where the fish are. At the end, after Jesus' resurrection, in John chapter 21, what are they doing? Fishing all night. Fishing. Throwing nets all night is what we should say. They weren't actually fishing. You have to catch fish to be considered fishing. And then Jesus says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, and, and they catch all kinds of fish. There was one other time when he caught a fish. It's when he owed his temple tax, and he didn't have any money on him. And Jesus said, well, why don't you go cast your line into the water and hook a fish for me? He hooks a fish, brings it up on shore, and what's in the fish's mouth? Just enough temple tax coins uh, for Jesus, temple tax, and Peter's. The only time Peter ever caught fish in the Bible is when Jesus told him to go fishing. All the other times, he was not what we would call a high-quality fisherman. So they put out, and he casts his net in to the water. And this time, though, the net is absolutely full of fish. In fact, the Bible tells us here that as he brings it up, the net is straining under the weight of the fish, and it is beginning to tear, and he calls out to his partners. We find out here that his partners are James and John, the sons of Zebedee, he says, come on over here. I got too many fish. The net's breaking. They start loading the fish into the boats, and then the boats begin to swamp. Now, this is a pretty decent catch as far as, as catches go. And what Jesus is showing them is, look, your ability to catch fish is not the issue here. The question is, who's in the boat with you? If you want to have the power to do something tremendous, it's not going to come from you, Peter. Peter, in a sense, is being told here in this boat, Peter, you don't bring anything to the table. Jesus is saying, I do want to use you, and I want to use you in powerful ways, but I don't want you to misunderstand. I don't want to use you because you're awesome. I want to use you because I am awesome, Jesus is saying. And Jesus here is going to transform Peter by his power. What is Jesus going to transform in Peter's life? Peter considers himself a fisherman, and Jesus says, what if I made you a different kind of fisherman? Look down at verse 10. Also with him were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said this to Simon, Do not be afraid. From, from now on, you will be catching men. You will be seeking people with the good news of the gospel. Now, if you were a fisherman and Jesus now told you you're going to go and you're going to share the good news of the gospel with the world and you are going to catch people for the kingdom of God, what would your response be? You say, you know what? I, throwing nets is not quite the same as bringing the good news of the kingdom of God to people. How, how am I possibly going to catch people? How, how am I, as a fisherman, going to be able to go up to the, the educated, the elite, the uh, the, the various people in society, what am I going to say to anybody that they would actually hear and listen to me and receive the good news of the gospel? He said, listen, I'm a fisherman. I spend my days on a boat. Nobody argues with me. I just throw the net, bring it in, sell the fish, go home. Now you want me to talk to people. In fact, we know this is the case later on in the book of Acts. Peter and James and John, and they're all proclaiming the gospel, and they're brought before the religious leaders, and they're explaining that they have to tell of the good news of the resurrection of Christ because they were witnesses to the raised Christ and were commanded to be his witnesses. And the Sanhedrin, what did they say about him at that point? They said, this is astonishing. These are uneducated men. That's not polite. 
They were in not-so-polite terms saying, these guys aren't bright enough to be doing what they're doing. What do you think Peter thought of himself as he's sitting in this boat and Jesus says, I'm going to send you out to capture people for the kingdom of God. He's going, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. So what is his message from Jesus here in this boat? Peter, you can't catch fish unless I help you. You also aren't going to be able to catch people unless I help you. What Peter learns here is Jesus transforms people because he is powerful enough to do what he wants to do in the lives of people. Peter isn't going to capture people for the good news of the gospel because he's amazing. He's going to capture people with the good news of the gospel because Jesus is able to transform him and his life. Look at, G at Peter's response in verse 7 and 8 when he caught all these fish. Well, I should say when Jesus ran a bunch of fish into Peter's net. He signaled the partners in the other boat to come help him, and they came and filled both boats, and, and they began to sink. This is just funny. He's about as good of a boatsman as he is a fisherman. When, when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. His reaction here is, is stunning. What does he say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why would Peter suddenly realize that he's a sinner? In this moment now he always knew he was a sinner as we would understand but why in this moment does he bring this up you can look at it later in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6 Isaiah finds himself in the throne room of God and when he sees God in his glory what does Isaiah say I am a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips what happens is this when you find yourself in the presence of God the first thing you recognize is you aren't God and you aren't good enough. Peter here in this moment is doing more than just saying Jesus is a miracle worker, really good at corralling fish into a net, a really good authoritative teacher. Peter here in this moment recognized who Jesus is. Jesus is God, and if God is sitting in my boat, I'm feeling a little bit unholy right now. He's suddenly realizing and remembering all of the things he said over those empty nets all night long. Because I'm certain every time the net came up empty, he said, oh, bless the Lord for another empty net, just like you and I would. He probably had a few choice words for that empty net. And his partners, who weren't doing any better. And now here's Jesus sitting in his boat, and he says, I'm, I'm a sinful man. He recognizes who Jesus is, and in humility, we call this repentance. I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. I, I don't have any way of fixing this about me. And Jesus says, don't worry about it. I am so powerful. I can transform you. I can change your life so that what happens in your life is a function of who Jesus is, not a function of who you are. Meeting Jesus changed everything for them. The better fisherman, Jesus, is going to teach them how to have a better purpose, become fishers for men. Look at their response in verse 11. When they brought their boats to land, they sold all their fish and gave 10% to the synagogue. And what'd they do? What do we need fish for? What do we need boats for? Now they're going to struggle with this. They're going to return to their boats and they're going to return to the lake after Jesus' death because they're going to struggle with this. But in this moment, they understand by the power of God's grace, 
This is Jesus who transforms and changes people, takes sinners, bring them in, people who don't measure up, who don't have anything to offer, and, and he says, I've got a job for you, a job you can't do unless I do the job, a job you can't do unless I change you, and I want you, uneducated fishermen, to be the spark that changes the world for the gospel. And they left everything, and they followed him. Because they recognize, not because of the fish merely, that this is Jesus who is God in the flesh, and he is powerful enough to transform people. That's one. Number two, you ready? He was still in one of the cities, and a man came to him. This is verse 12, Luke chapter 5. A man came to him full of leprosy. I don't know what it means to be full of leprosy. It, it seems like you got a lot of it. Like you can maybe have a little bit of leprosy. What do you got going on? Oh, I'm not feeling too good. Got a little leprosy. But this guy doesn't have a little leprosy. This guy is full of leprosy. And, and he saw Jesus, and he, and he begged Jesus. Look what he begged Jesus for. If you will, you can make me clean. So the man with leprosy recognizes this about Jesus, that he has the power to cleanse him from his leprosy. His prayer is kind of interesting because his prayer is not so much a question of whether or not Jesus can heal him. What's his question? Will he? Now, I know none of you ever struggle with having a bad attitude about God. I mean, you're out here on daylight savings time. You're obviously the cream of the crop. There is a crown in heaven for people who go to church on daylight savings. I don't know that. I'm making that up. There should be if there isn't. His question is, okay, God's big enough, he's powerful enough, but is he going to show up? I know what God can do, he's saying. I know you can make me clean. The question is, Jesus, do you give a rip? Will you make me clean? Is God actually going to do a work of transformation in my life? Or, Jesus, are you going to have casual disregard uh, for my situation? Look what Jesus does in verse 13. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Jesus stretches out his hand and touches this man who's full of leprosy. What part of this man doesn't have leprosy? Jesus touched leprosy. A couple of things about this. Number one, that's kind of gross. I mean, he probably is in some state of a lack of hygiene, keeping in mind that in that culture, if you had leprosy, you lived on the outskirts of society, you had to walk around shouting unclean to make sure you didn't defile anybody who wanted to go to temple that day. And so a lot of times these people were impoverished and uh, cast to the outside and so oftentimes would be living in very, very difficult and challenging situations. So you got a guy with a, a skin disease who was likely having trouble staying clean and Jesus reaches out and puts his hand on him. So what happens to Jesus when he touches this man? In the law, what happens, if you touched a man with leprosy, you are unclean. You are unable now to go to the temple until you go through a particular ritual to become ceremonially clean again. So has Jesus here in touching this leper made himself unclean? I don't think so. This is God in the flesh. You don't make him clean. What does he do? He makes things holy. 
And Jesus reaches out and touches him. Another thing to notice about the healing of this leper, did Jesus have to touch him? No, remember how Jesus heals people throughout his ministry on earth. Sometimes he heals people by touching them. Sometimes he heals people by them touching his clothing without him touching them. Sometimes he heals somebody by spitting on their uh, eyes and making mud. Sometimes he touches their tongue. Sometimes he heals them from afar. Other times he heals people, not because they're there, but because somebody else came and said, will you heal my servant who's in another county? And Jesus says, oh yeah, he's better. And then when they get back, they find out he was healed at the time the guy was talking. So Jesus can heal in any way he wants. If he wanted to heal while juggling, he could have. Does Jesus have to touch this guy? No. So why does he? Because he wants the guy to know he cares about him. He lays his hand on his leprosy to say, I don't merely want you to be over your leprosy. I want you to understand I'm with you. That you're not outside any longer. And your leprosy doesn't worry me. Your leprosy doesn't bother me. It doesn't creep me out. I'm not worried about becoming unclean, and I'm not worried about what people think about me having touched you. And he lays his hand on him, and Jesus says, I will be clean. And immediately, the leprosy left him. Really, really important to understand. The, the, the author of the gospel here, Luke, is saying he didn't slowly get better over the course of six months. The guy immediately looked better. His skin was clean. And then Jesus says to this guy, go show yourself to the priest, make the appropriate offering for your cleansing, and follow the commands of Moses. There was a routine you had to do. If the leprosy you had went away, you would have to go to the temple, and there was sort of a ceremony you would have to follow. And Jesus said, I want you to go to them and do that. And look why he says, end of verse 14. What's he say? For a proof to them. What does Jesus want to prove to the religious leaders at the temple? The Messiah is here. The Messiah is here. Because here's the thing. Jesus doesn't go with the guy to get cleansed. What did Jesus do? He touched a leper. He also would need to go through the ritual to demonstrate his cleanness. No, I don't need to do that. I'm the Messiah. What he wants this guy to do, the leper who was a religious outcast, never allowed into synagogue, never allowed into the community, really, and, of course, never allowed into the temple fellowship, ever. Jesus says, I want you, religious outcast, to be the one who is a proof to the religious people the Messiah is here. I want you, religious outcast, to go to the religious people to tell, him, tell them, look, the Messiah healed me, because that's what Isaiah says the Messiah will do. So he's here. How do you think the religious people are going to respond to the ex-leper giving them religious lessons? Not favorably. So here we have two occasions. We have a, a fisherman who, at least in the Bible, is portrayed as not a high-quality fisherman. We know Peter was good at fishing. He wouldn't have uh, the business he did. But he is portrayed here as one who needs Jesus to, to meet his calling, a fisherman who's going to be called into the disciple-making work of the kingdom of God, and a leper who was called in to be approved to the existence and the life of the Messiah to the religious people. Outsiders, by the power of Jesus, being transformed into key workers in the kingdom of God. We might say it this way. 
An encounter with Jesus changes everything for Peter. An encounter with Jesus changes everything for this uh, leper. Jesus is powerful enough to transform out people who are on the outside to be vital members of the kingdom of God. He takes the broken, he takes the bruised, he takes the battered, he takes the rejected, and gives them the highest possible purpose. Key people in the kingdom of heaven. He does that for them, and he does it for each who trust him. Look at verse 15 as we get ready to look at one more powerful miracle of Jesus. Now, even more, the report about Jesus went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Jesus, though, would withdraw to desolate places uh, to pray. So what was happening is that he was healing people, and he was teaching more and more people were gathering around him. And what we see here in uh, this verse is a theme that's going to be carried out through the book of Luke, which is this. Jesus was not overly excited about big crowds showing up. In fact, he was really passive on it and in many ways disinterested in how many people were there. In many cases, he, he saw the crowds as a problem. He wasn't trying to see how many people he could get to show up. He was simply trying to do the work of God. So look what he did in response to these crowds crowding around him. He would withdraw to desolate places to pray because he saw the power of God was accomplished through prayer and spending time with God, not through how many people could he get to show up. Jesus transforms with power, and he changes people's lives, and he gives us purpose, and he gives us a calling in his kingdom, but he changes something even more fundamental. Jesus changes our hearts. So let's look at this guy who couldn't walk, beginning in verse 17. Jesus heals a paralytic. Trust Jesus forgives us of our sin. Quick little story, a guy named Eric Musambani. Eric Musambani. He was a, an Olympic swimmer for Equatorial New Guinea. Now, you may not have realized that Equatorial New Guinea had an Olympic swimming program, because they don't. What happened in the 2000 Olympics is the Olympic Committee decided they wanted developing countries to have more of an opportunity to engage in sports that usually require fairly expensive uh, training facilities such as uh, swimming and so they allowed certain developing countries to enter people into Olympic sports even though they didn't meet the minimum requirements to qualify for the Olympics so Eric for his country was selected to uh, uh, to compete in the 100 meter swim in the 2000 Olympics he had never before the Olympics seen an Olympic sized swimming pool he trained one hour a day when a local hotel in his city would let him swim in their pool that wasn't 150 meters long. He would just swim about trying to get figure the swimming thing out. So he had never seen an Olympic-sized swimming pool. He stood up in his heat of the Olympics, and he was competing against two other people. You guys are Googling the YouTube video now. It's a good video. You can watch it. The two other competitors were disqualified for false starts. No chance Eric was going to false start because he wasn't that quick off the blocks. So the two other guys are DQ'd on false starts. Suddenly Eric is standing as the only swimmer. The gun is fired and he dives into the water. He promptly sets an Olympic record at 1 minute 52 seconds the single longest time it has ever taken 
for an Olympic athlete to complete the 100-meter freestyle. Most gold medalists nowadays swim the 100-meter freestyle in 48 seconds. He swam it in a minute and 52 seconds. There's a certain spot, if you watch the video, towards the end of his second lap, you're not certain he's going to actually finish this race because he had never trained, and he had just sort of figured out in a hotel swimming pool an hour a day how to swim. And surprising to everyone, he won a heat at the Olympics. He didn't get anywhere near the podium. I don't want you to think there's some kind of story where he figured it out and he won gold. No, no. He won one heat. Good for him. And yeah, Google the video later, or if you're falling asleep, you can do it in the service. Here's the thing. I don't know what, if Eric is a believer or not a believer, and I don't know if he prayed to God or anyone else before that race, but here's how I want you to think about it hypothetically. He's standing there on those blocks, and maybe he might pray a prayer like we would pray. Lord, I don't know what I'm doing here. Will you make me fast? And the answer to Eric's prayer is, is this. What if I could make you win without making you fast? What if I, what if I could make you a winner and not make you fast? And what would all of our response be? Well, actually, Lord, uh, let's do the fast thing. I want to be awesome. But, but what if I could do something more fundamental than what you want to do, God would say. Jesus transforms people fundamentally by altering what's going on in our hearts. On one of these days, he was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law. This is verse 17 of Luke chapter 5. They had all gathered. A whole bunch of people had come from every village in Galilee. Galilee is the area around the Lake of Galilee, Sea of Galilee. They had come from Judea. They had come from Jerusalem. Pharisees, scribes, religious leaders, teachers, along with all kinds of other people, and they were listening to Jesus teach, and the power of God was on him. Some guys brought one of their friends, a, a man who wasn't able to walk, and they brought him on a bed, and they're going to take him into Jesus. And what are they going to do? They want him to get healed, but they're not able to get the guy in to where Jesus is because the crowds are too great in the house where Jesus is staying. So they take this guy on his cot, on his mat, whatever it is, but they've got a, a thing that he's, they're carrying, and they walk him up onto the roof of the house. That would have been simple to do. Most of the houses are flat-roofed, and they've got a set of stairs going up the side of them. So they go up onto the top, and they sort of estimate where they think Jesus is. You know, that looks pretty good. They dig a hole through the roof. That's not hard to do. Most of the roofs were made out of mud and clay. What they would do is they would run wood beams across the, the roof, and then they would lay down hay and, and thatch and that sort of thing and work the mud into it, and so the mud would go between the beams. So it wouldn't have been that hard to, to dig the clay away, pull the hay up, and now they could lower this guy between the two wood beams, and they'd drop him right in front of Jesus. And what does the guy say? No idea. None of his words are ever recorded in the scripture. His God, he doesn't speak. None of his friends speak. They don't ask Jesus to do that. They just drop a guy in front of him. All right, Jesus, you do your thing. Verse 20. When Jesus saw their faith, when he saw the faith of the man who's now sitting in front of him, I keep looking up. I can't help you. No. Guy sitting in front of him, looking at, looking at his friends, he looks at all of their faith. Here's a group of people trusting Jesus. And he perceives that not just the guy, 
But the guy and his friends are here because they, they trust Jesus. This is similar to Peter in a sense because Jesus told Peter, cast your net out. And Peter's response to Jesus, this is earlier, he said, uh, listen, I've been fishing all night. I haven't caught anything. But since you told me to, I'll do it. That's, a, that's faith. It's, it's not a lot of faith, but it's faith nonetheless. Now he's looking at, his, at these guys and this guy on the mat, and he sees the same thing. Here's Jesus. We're going to lower our friend down and see what happens. See what Jesus does. Jesus saw their faith, and he looks at the guy, and he says this. Your sins are forgiven. Now, what's your response to that if you're this guy? What would you have said? And we don't know what he said. What would you have thought in that moment? Well, it depends on what your sins are, I suppose. I know what I would have thought. That's great. But, I mean, I'm just spitballing here, Jesus. I'd like to walk out with my sins forgiven, uh, not be carted up through the hole I was dropped down in. The sins forgiven thing is great, but I've got some issues that are kind of pressing for me. The my legs don't work right situation is something I'm kind of concerned about. And Jesus says to this guy, what if everything were okay and your legs didn't work? How could, po how could things possibly be okay if he wasn't healed? How could things possibly be okay if the only thing Jesus did was forgive him of his sins? How could that make anything better whatsoever? Well, that's the problem with us and everybody else who's ever lived. We look at forgiveness of sins as trite and cute and religious and something our Sunday school teacher told us about. Jesus understands this. Having sins forgiven is how you live forever with God in his presence. Having functioning legs is not going to help you live forever in the presence of God. So Jesus here understands the real problem this guy is dealing with, his sin. Now, this guy doesn't say anything. We, he probably was thinking what you and I would be thinking, but it also very well could have been he's like Peter. Peter, standing in the presence of God, realizes he needs his sins forgiven. This guy may have been the same way. Scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, were sitting about, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees and religious leaders here are absolutely right, aren't they, theologically? Who forgives sins but God alone? No one. The only person who can forgive sins is God. They are absolutely right theologically, but what do they get wrong? They don't realize they're listening to God. Jesus is only committing blasphemy if he's not God. If he is God, he's not committing blasphemy. He's doing what he does, which is forgive sins. Sins. Verse 22, Jesus perceived their thoughts, and he said, why do you question me in your hearts? What is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? That's a good question. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Well, let's test it. Let's imagine, I'm not saying anybody here, but let's imagine you said something dumb to your spouse. I know nobody here would ever do that. And then you go up to your spouse and you say, what I said was dumb. And they respond, understatement, but I'll, I'll hear you out. 
and you say, I don't want to do it anymore. I own it. My bad. Will you forgive me? And the spouse says, of course I forgive you. And inside they're thinking, I will get my revenge. <laughs> there will be a time where this will be made right. Justice must be done. But on the outside, what are they saying? Of course I forgive you. I'm thirsty. Yeah. And then suddenly drinks are being brought, right? So, of course, we know this. We can forgive people all day long because we're supposed to. Somebody does something wrong to it. Don't worry about it. And inside, oh, I'm worried about it. Have you ever done that before? Of course you have. You're human. And so Jesus say, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. What he's saying is here, I understand what you're thinking. There's no way to verify this. The only way to verify this guy's sins are forgiven is for him to die and then us go to heaven and see if he's there. Kind of hard to do. So, let me do it this way, he says. So that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Let me paraphrase that. So you will know I am God and I can forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, pick up your bed, go home. And the guy picks up his bed and goes home. So Jesus transforms this guy. The, the only thing he did, he healed his legs merely to show that he had already transformed him. The healing here was not to change his life, to give him a better life, to make it more convenient for him to go check his mail. The goal here was for this guy to enter the kingdom of heaven by the power of Christ alone, and his healing was done as a testimony to those around him that Jesus can and does, in fact, forgive sins. The religious leaders then abandoned their religious traditions and put their faith in Christ for salvation. No. They are now going to become even more steadfast over time to crucify Christ because he's not the Messiah they want. Why? If people's sins are forgiven, how do religious leaders keep people under the heavy weight and burden of their religious system? If God's going around forgiving people, how do I convince people they have to do what I tell them? It ruins everything in a religious system based on power to, to, that everybody's running around with their sins forgiven. Verse 26, in amazement, the people watching glorified God and were, were filled with awe. We have seen extraordinary things. Jesus transforms people. Number one, Peter trusted Jesus because he saw the power of Christ and understood he needed to repent. And Jesus here transformed people in the most powerful way. He forgives sin. Does Jesus forgive? Look at one other verse, and I'll just mess with you a little bit here. Verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, does Jesus forgive? Let's think about it this way. Jesus perceived their thoughts. So what does Jesus show us he's able to do by his power? He knows what people are thinking. Think about the disciples for a little bit. They spend every day for upwards of three, three and a half years with Jesus, okay? It's frustrating sometimes to spend some time with people who, who know you so well, they know what you're going to do. Doesn't that get old after a while? Okay, I get it, I'm predictable. But here, they're walking around with Jesus, 
I'm just curious. It's not recorded. This is how my imagination works. I wonder how many times Peter's walking along and Jesus goes, really, Peter? We're thinking that now. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't, after a while, wouldn't that be, what would you be? I would go crazy. Really, Peter? Okay. People think you're mouthy on the outside. Jesus is able to know and understand everything we're thinking, and he forgives. He's that gracious. There's no way Jesus could have spent all that time with his disciples if he wasn't filled with grace and forgiveness and kindness. Jesus forgives because he's willing to spend his time and his energy with us even though the, the sin inside of us is likely much worse than the sin that's going on in the world around us. And Jesus, by his grace and his kindness, says, I bring forgiveness to you by my work on the cross. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he died for every sin we've ever committed and all the imaginations and thoughts of our hearts. And he says, I give you my grace even for the fallenness in your own hearts and minds. I know what's going on inside of you. And I bring you my grace and forgiveness by my death on the cross. And by the power of his resurrection, he gives us the ability to live forever with him. Jesus transforms people. We have to trust that Jesus is powerful, and we have to trust that Jesus forgives. A couple of quick thoughts on this by way of closing. This is a, a faith thing. Jesus transforming our hearts. This is a, a faith thing. Uh, sometimes our cynicism, our skepticism, our past experiences in church or other religious experiences, we tend to say, uh, God can ne God's never going to change anything about me. God's never going to change anything about the people in my life. I pray and I pray. I don't see any change happening. Could God really change my heart? Not merely change how I behave. Could God really alter and change the things that are going on in my heart? Can God make me a different kind of person from the inside out? And what Jesus is compelling us with these uh, time spent with the, the paralytic and the leper and with Peter is, yes, he has the power to transform our hearts. Now, I wish, as much as you do, that I could see something wrong in my own heart and I could just pray to God and boom, it's fixed. But that's not how it works. A lot of times he's going to take us on a journey with Christ to slowly, over the course of time, knock the rough edges off of our heart and soul. But this is a faith issue. We have to trust that God has the grace to take the time with us to change what needs to change in our hearts and to change what needs to change in the hearts of the people around us. You see the people you know and love in your life, and you know the ways in which they're struggling, and you're praying for them, and you're wondering, is God ever going to change them? And the answer is yes. God transformed people because he is powerful. It's once again, I think, time for us to sort of renew our faith and say, you know what? Cynicism is not paying off skepticism in my own heart that God's not going to show up. It's not paying off. I need to trust that Jesus will actually change what's going on within me. But here's the thing. Jesus' transformation starts with forgiveness. You cannot experience the transformation that comes from God without having your sins forgiven. The first step to having God change our hearts is repenting, saying, God, I need forgiveness for my sin and I need Jesus to forgive it, and I trust that what he did on the cross pays for my sin. The only way to experience real transformation in our heart is to have the life of Christ within us by his spirit, 
by trusting that he died for us on the cross. That's the only way to change. You're not going to change yourself by being more disciplined and have better habits. All you're going to do is put a Band-Aid on a wound that needs surgery. Real transformation at the heart begins by saying, Jesus, I need your forgiveness. Last thing. Jesus loves you as much as he can love you now, as much as he can love you then. Jesus, let me, let me put it this way. I don't know how to say this politely. I actually don't know how to say it impolitely either, so I'll just say it. Think about how you need to change. You got it? Or you, did you find it? If you're not sure, check with the person next to you. What do I need to change? And they've got a list in their pocket here. Start with this. Think of that thing that needs to change you. You know what it is, your bad attitude or you know, whatever you do, that secret stuff. And think, does Jesus love you in that? Is that a hard question? Yes, he does. Jesus died while we were still sinners. So Jesus loves you in the fact that there's stuff about you that needs to change. Now, let's imagine, by God's grace, uh, 18 months from now, we'll say 18 months, that sounds nice, 18 months from now, by God's grace, Jesus changed you. You're a new person. You no longer say the swears or whatever it is that you do. You no longer get mad at the neighbors or you, you no longer cheat on stuff. I don't know. So 18 months later, that thing in your life that needs to be changed is totally changed. In fact, it's so changed, people around you are going, what's going on? You're a different kind of person. People are throwing parades, and you're getting congratulations in the mail. It's amazing. Does Jesus love you more there? No, he can't. So this is what's fundamentally true about Christ's transformation love. He loves us before we change. He loves us while he's working the change. And he loves us after he has changed us. The, the gracious, kind expression of Jesus' love for us cannot be altered because it's not dependent on us. It's dependent on what his love is like. So therefore, we have the, the safety relationally of saying, you know what, Jesus loves me while I work through the struggle and the fight of wanting change to occur in my life. That when I, some days it goes better than others, I still know Jesus loves me. And he can't love me anymore, and he can't love me any less, because his love in a relationship is granted when I trust him. Jesus transforms people. Trust Jesus that power is powerful, and trust that Jesus forgives. Will you join me as we close with prayer. God, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you that you change and transform people like us. But God, we have to agree with you. The reality is in our own hearts, we, we hold on to things that we, that we don't want to give up, things we, we don't want to change. Pet sins and attitudes and, and things we know that aren't consistent with a life of worship of you and and we pray, God, in this moment, the Holy Spirit would do a work of conviction in our life. That we would see what Peter saw. That you are God and we need your grace and forgiveness. And when we, when we encounter you, it changes everything. We leave all that other stuff behind and follow you. God, I pray for those who are here in this room that have struggled with a number of difficult and persistent uh, sins and struggles in their life and they wonder if it's ever going to get better. I would pray, God, in this moment, that you would pour out your grace in their heart. 
They would see and recognize how much you love them. And you do have the power to change. And God, we would ask for transformation to occur in our hearts. God, I would pray for those who are here this morning who don't know you. That in this moment, by your kindness and your spirit, you would show them they need forgiveness by putting faith in Jesus. Because you died for us and you rose from the dead. God, we thank you for the kindness that you have shown us in Christ. And we can't wait till you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song.